welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about being heard. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And today we have a special, special guest host. Hello, Jane. Introduce yourself. I'm Jane Henderson, a conservator who teaches in Cardiff. Welcome aboard, Jane. We're Welcome. glad to have you back. Always a pleasure. Oh, you flatter us. Right, just a, a quick piece of news before we start. Uh, I just want to say that the um, there, there's a talk up on Icon's website. You do have to be a member to access it, but it's a really good one. It's Dennis Lee's talk on contract law for conservatives. It's called Who's Afraid of Legal Contracts? And it's a really good talk and the slides are up as well. Super useful. Do check it out. I actually went to this one. It was in London in the Freemasons Hall. It was really cool. Very posh. It was done by the paintings group, I want to say. And boy, do they know how to put a talk on. There was Prosecco. There was cheese. <laughs> oh, guys, we got to up our game. This is amazing. <laughs> Prosecco and cheese, guys. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, it was really good. Uh, and now the kind of audio file and the slides are up on icons website so if you're a member you can log in and have a listen it's really useful so i do recommend it um yeah that's my piece of news basically great all right what we're we talking about today chloe so today we're talking about well as you said being heard in conservation we as conservatives have the duty of knowing about object safety obviously um <laughs> which is the perfect partner to curators who know about object history uh, technicians who know about object display and visitor engagement about object education and all of that but that also means that we are the ones who know all the things that can go wrong <laughs> um no pressure we have all of these rules in our heads that we follow to ensure object safety it can also feel like we have the whole conservation profession past and future watching what we're doing mm. uh, making sure that we're doing it right making sure that we're we're not endangering any objects and that we're working to best practice um, but we're often only one person against whole institutions um, and basically we are the ones who have to be in some ways, the grumpy pants naysayers who have to say no to everybody. And that's a, that can be a big problem. So oh, this- um, we are here with Jane, who <laughs> has uh, my first ideas of this as a problem. And this is a, as a with some solutions, of course, um, was in uh, Cardiff, where we did where I did my uh, degree. And this was part of one of the lectures. And I was really interested in it. And I, I think, Jane, you have a couple of thoughts on this, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to have thoughts on this topic, yes. <laughs> I think it's because I specialised in shouting angrily at people for a few years. Amazing. And <laughs> I was surprised continuously how ineffective it was as a means of communication. But it didn't stop me trying. So why why did you shout at people? What was the what was the what was the cause of shouting? My favourite story, which I think I've probably bored you both with before, is some lamps in a museum. Museum have bought some lamps that were ridiculously bright. They were sort of floodlight lamps, oh, car lamps, oh and they were so bright. And the curator and I talk about these lamps all the time. And I said, These are awful. And Jenny, have you got your bell ready? <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, don't you worry. That's going to be some sensory. These bells are tinkle, 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 <laughs> useless. And so on, every time we met. And then the curator moved and went to another gallery and he installed new lights and he installed the same lights. <sighs> and I was 
genuinely shocked. And I was like, did I not make myself tinkling clear? (laughs) (laughs) Tinkling awful. Those lights are. And it really puzzled me for a long time as to why, when I had been so categorical about how appalling the lights were, that he'd gone and installed them in a second gallery. And it was my fault because I'd made this a point of pride. I'd forced the situation where he had to defend the lights and to put anything else apart from those kinds of lights in again would have been a climb down. Oh, I see. Psychological. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm. quite good. Oh, that's an interesting example. I like that. I I was quite enjoying when you were building up to this that it sounded like there was teeny tiny conservator against the monster of an institution. (laughs) And I also enjoyed that with the naysayers because actually in a lot of episodes now we've been saying that we're always trying to be the yes sayers and always trying to enable people. Yeah, I suppose sometimes we do have to put our foot down. I think the thing I've noticed is that all of the people involved in object display and object storytelling have so many ideas and events that are so different and interesting to things that have been done before traditionally. And if the relationship is positive, they ask the conservators about it. And it's really hard to not say, you want to do what? (laughs) (laughs) See, I find it goes two ways sometimes because I feel like people do come and ask me about things and I'm like, yes, of course, that's all right. Because I feel like maybe in the past people have perceived that conservatives are very stern and they never say yes to anything. So they're really nervous about asking me. And it seems to be more of a blanket ban, like any insect ever in a museum is bad. And I'm like, no, we worry about these ones. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind that you come to me with a handful of ladybirds, (laughs) but... I, I'm not that I'm not that fast. <laughs> like, that bit's okay. Let them out. I think maybe what we've tried to do is say no to everything and hope that something sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe actually. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, this, one of the things I've learned from parenting about this is that, you know, know what you're prepared to fight for. Oh, yeah. Only ask, you know, really, really think, how far would I be prepared to go to get this change or not to do this and do I really need it because if we you know like Chloe's saying if we could make more positive encounters and fewer negative ones then the people might listen to you when it comes to the negative ones mm. but if they expect to know if they come in to see you expecting a no then I think you know it's like well she said no of course she did that's what she does conservatives say no yeah. yeah and then it's kind of like so whether do we listen to this no or don't we because we didn't listen to the last no and the end of the world wouldn't happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what can we do to be heard what can we do well, the number one thing to think about when you're trying to influence someone is not what you're interested in, but what they're interested in. Because we tend to fixate on the thing that we want to communicate to them. Here's our message. And we craft it and work on it. But actually, the thing that we should fixate on is who is it that we're trying to communicate with and what are they interested in? Mm-hmm. It's kind of obvious now that I think about it, but obviously you have to think about who your audience is, essentially. Oh, yeah. Because- and our colleagues are kind of as variegated as we are. So some people, you know, they like to think of themselves as very relaxed or really progressive or really challenging or they like to think of themselves as methodical and efficient and all those different things they're called self-schema they'll all affect the way that they hear what you say to them i feel like we're really going into psychological territory yeah, no, now yeah. that's really fun you did invite me <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> no i like that please tell me more so how did you how did you change your behavior back in the day when you were yelling at people <laughs> from yelling and stomping your feet there was a lot of stamping. Um, <laughs> you know, it took me a very long time. I'm a very slow I am. Because some people would do what you were told. And I kind of, you know, some people, military museums, for example, great with a list. <laughs> Love a list. No, I, I really, the light thing really bugged and ate away at me. 
and I went back to college and I did a master's, same as you guys. And I decided just to study that for my dissertation. And it was all to do with these these lines. It was really the big prompt. And I, and I wanted to know how to be more influential. So I thought, well, I'm going to go and actually learn how to do it. I mean, I wouldn't say I was 100% good at it. But what I got out from that was that you could actually learn to do this. It's not just, you know, some people have got it and some people haven't. But this is something you can learn. And that was good. Oh, that is good. That is really positive. I think I've done more things where I've shared in other people's concerns. So one of the things I've done really well is get involved in policy writing. Oh, and I put this much, I don't sit at the policy writing meetings and say, did little conservation, did little conservation. I actually engage with the other stuff as well. So how do we communicate about this problem or what about this example? So I think being seen to care about other people's agendas is a behavioral change that you can do. You know, make sure mm. in the meeting you've acknowledged and engaged with their agenda before you ask them to acknowledge and engage with yours. Oh, that's, that's oh, a, I like that. That is a good one. I feel like arguably that does work really well because i'm part of a really small team now so you kind of have to care about other people's stuff because it's you know you're all part of the team yeah so yeah i I might might be the only conservator and like the collections team is small but that still means that you get to talk loads to everyone else and so you Mm. kind of take a whole new ownership of other people's stuff like not that it's your responsibility but more that you can have input and you can actually be helpful with them so i feel like that's really helped as we i suppose it's it's more of a challenge if you're part of a conservation department that is very remote from, say, the other departments. Yeah. And that becomes more challenging, but still yes. something that is achievable, I think. Well, that means that you just have to, you know, those emails that you delete that says, who would like to come to an all organization <laughs> meeting about? So, <laughs> and we haven't got time for that. We're busy conservatives. Uh-huh. <laughs> you just have to pick them up when there's going to be good quality biscuits and coffee and go along. Yeah. And that's then you create a sort of a, a positive relationship with people that may be off topic yeah but it creates a kind of positive relationship and then you might be get to be known as oh there's the weird conservative who actually doesn't say no to everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> i actually my second bullet point question of of things to discuss is how can we maintain positive relationships while saying no oh. so we've got the positive relationships mm-hmm. and we've got the the meetings and being the the, the conservator ooh, who maybe brings biscuits herself as well ooh. herself himself themselves yeah sorry <laughs> being inclusive so i have two questions are you asking about saying no and i think we still have to think about when we say no but it's like as really as possible and you don't necessarily say no you can do that thing when you make them work out as a no themselves by saying <laughs> well we can do this all we need is a nitrogen cylinder oh yes <laughs> case from this company i'll send you the details and you know what i mean and some oxygen scavengers and would you like me to help you look for a grant funder to fund this <laughs> Do you know what you mean? And yeah, I think yeah. that's that's a no. I really I like that, I guess. I yeah, I think that's that's a that's a way of saying this is why I've said no rather than saying that's a dumb idea, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you say the dumb idea, you're back to where me and this yeah. anonymous truth was with that. Yeah, yeah that's because the then it's either, either you're a dumb or these lights are correct. Oh and yeah. you give yeah. choice. Yeah. People don't tend to choose dumb no 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 i feel like i have a fixed facial expression that i accidentally pull when i'm thinking (laughs) what (laughs) when it's and i don't i'm i i like to think that i can hide my emotions but i I wonder if i can't oh i definitely don't it's very evident (laughs) in a meeting when i'm thinking something is bad (laughs) it is a slight problem on the other hand people do appreciate that they're like she doesn't like that look at her (laughs) yeah thanks i had a terrible pen tapping habit 
that if someone was annoying me, I'd be tapping my pen frantically. Oh my god, Aww. that's amazing! <laughs> I didn't even realize I was doing it until somebody told me. <laughs> Is it was it the frequency of the pen tapping that indicated the it severity of the? <laughs> yeah. It was like a proxy for foot stamping. <laughs> <laughs> I can't strap my feet, so I'm going to tap my pen. Yeah, it needs to come out somehow. (laughs) I think uh, my colleague and I have a a sort of sidelong glance when somebody suggests something and we're thinking, basically, that glance means, how do we... uh... How do we say no? <laughs> Who's going to start? Yeah, yeah, why don't we do this? Uh, so what about embedded practices? Because I feel like we're we're often in conservation, fairly young women. That's the, 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 the baseline. We, we tend to always be fairly young women. We're going into institutions that have people in them who have been working there for upwards of 10 years. They do things the way they want to do them. They come from conservation, a conservation world or a collections care world that is not the same as it is now. Um, and essentially we we have the responsibility of the objects but do we have the control oh that's hard and so you're thinking that those people are doing things that you don't think are right yeah in that hypothetical context that nobody of course listening to this has ever encountered themselves yes you're talking about conservation colleagues or curatorial colleagues i suppose i'll say colleagues in general so can it can encompass collections assistants gallery technicians curatorial visitor experience any any of the above i think that the variety of the way that museums and collections care departments work can mean that it just gets vastly complicated i mean i will put in a little pitch for the oldies as an oldie myself these days i'm always dead impressed how many people get in touch with me when i send students to work with them saying oh, oh we love having students because they challenge us and they give us a new perspective that's really and good. it is really nice and of course i hear that a lot so you know there are people out there who do like being challenged oh, but there are nice. people who don't but don't forget that there are some people who do like being challenged so it's a question of how you challenge people and i guess the first thing they're going to say is well i've done it like this and nothing bad has happened that's the exact phrase that I have in my mind. Yes, yeah. I do hear of, that oh, a lot. Like, we've, we've always done it like this. Yeah, no, or like, time. I, I've <laughs> always, I always touch lead with my bare hands. I'm fine. You can stamp when it comes to health and safety. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're licking the lead. You, you can say, no, just stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're but interested think, in hazards collections, then you can uh, uh, listen to our hazards episode yes, in you can. series two. Yeah, danger, danger. That's a good one. No, I, I, so I think the thing is, you have to ask yourself, honestly, is it doing any harm because you know we've got a new ways you've got the you know the young people always want to change the way things are done by the old people that's just like the um the way of the world isn't it it's the way of life um and mostly the young people win and get to do things new and better and then we all progress but there's a few times when the way things were done before were perfectly fine so i think i would ask you know are you sure that your way is better are you sort of replacing their dogma with your dogma as in they've got a dogma of this is how we've always done it and you've got a dogma well this is what i was told to do Mm. or do you actually have like real evidence that what they're doing is problematic if they're, you know, touching the lead with their tongue, then we have. Yes. <laughs> I identify this through taste. <laughs> but, you know, if there is a real problem, then you have to sort of think about whether they, how much do they care about the damage to the object versus how much do they care about the damage to their ego? Mm. And really, you've got to think of a way of getting them to identify that damage to their to the object that they're causing, but protect their ego. Their egos are fragile. People's egos are fragile. So how do you get them to to do that? And it might be that getting it from you might be 
oh, they're too young, I can't be told. Mm. But it might be that somebody else can tell them, um, you know, in a different way. So it might be, if you say it was front of house staff, you've always got a range of, of people there in the front of house, haven't you? So if you can win round the progressives, then they'll take off the uh, the dug-in one for you. And you know, they'll down. start, they'll go, come on, Timothy, we've been told, stop it, Timothy, and tell you what, we've always, we've changed, you know. And if you can get the, you got the volunteers, you can always pick off, you know, the, the progressive, you know, not with training and encouragement and reinforcement and then get them to do it. I mean, sometimes you can get someone higher up, you know, if it's really urgent, if it's critical and it's damaging something immediately, then you can't go over people's heads, but that will damage your long-term working relationship. So you really need to play that very rarely. You need to play that only when they're more likely to get the sack for what they're doing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I I have to say, uh, sometimes it does seem to help to have several sources. So if it's at all possible to have not just me tell them, but carry around a bibliography in your pocket. No, no, it's, a, it's <laughs> so that's not going to help. But what can help is, for example, someone coming in, like a, a visiting other museum person, to, to say the same thing is actually really helpful. Or it can be, you can somehow direct them to see it on Twitter. <laughs> because sometimes other professionals talking about the same things that you're talking about in a professional capacity on social media uh-huh. is another reason that people go, oh, yes, no, I have seen that thing that you're talking about. Actually, yes, maybe we will stop doing that. Or, you know, like oh, sometimes yeah. they, it just needs to be reinforced so they don't hear one voice. I find. And I'm guessing you don't mean passive aggressively sending them a link on no, Facebook. No, that's not a good idea. You kind of have to let them do the discovery themselves. Exactly. Let them discover it themselves. And visiting places as well. Mm. You know, going to see other museums, because that's always a very popular kind of professional development thing. Mm. Go to see another museum nearby. Yeah. Pick it with one. What You know what your problem is. Pick one that you know is doing it well. Mm. Set that museum up to do the talk. Make sure that they make, you know, mention the thing that you're concerned about. And then, you know, say... Something along the lines of, oh, yeah, we've been worrying about that too, haven't we, Timothy? (laughs) (laughs) I hope you don't have any close friends called Timothy because I'd be like, why is she talking about me? No, I picked someone I didn't know. <laughs> it's a good one. Well, then you sort of say, well, Timothy was raising this. You know, last week he was saying that he was wondering about it. And, you know, it's just make people discover yeah. it themselves. Help people to be better. Yeah. That's going to be the tagline of the show. What do we do when things go wrong? What do we do when we've said no in whatever way we've managed to phrase it and we've said we, we can't make this safe and then they, that a, a person or the project doesn't listen to the conservation advice and something goes wrong, object damage, object loss, whatever it is, what do we do? What is our inner urge to do? Uh, punch someone in the oh, face yeah. and start crying. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I'm a professional. I'm a professional. <laughs> Write a but damage report guessing. and uh, <laughs> contact the police. Think, I think our inner urge is to rush in and almost saw our bodies on the situation, you know. <laughs> Broken object here. I must protect. And you know what? And then the urge, you, you know, the I told you so stuff. Yeah. And I would keep away. Mm. Keep away. Yeah. Stay away. That's my advice. Wait till somebody asks for you. If somebody says, oh, we need Chloe here, mm. then you turn up to help. 
But if you turn up and start putting up yellow and black tape and saying, <laughs> well, I told you this was going to go wrong and knew this was going to go wrong. We have to, going to close the gallery now and they're going to lose a leg and they'll have their eye out. Um, then you're the, you're the voice of doom and gloom and you're the nature. Yes. And suddenly, mm. I've really got this thing of, from a feminist perspective, but you're suddenly the one talking about the problem. So the person who did the tup thing and dropped it, they've walked off, you know, they've gone away to fill in a piece of paper. And you're suddenly standing there. So when the importance descend, who's standing there amongst the broken things? Remember that when you were kids, you know, your brother or sister was really good at getting away and leaving you looking like you'd broken the window. That's <laughs> and the parents are shouting the first one they see. Yeah, that's such a good point of view. It is. So if you wait till you're asked, I mean, why do you need to go? The object has been broken. I don't honestly believe that it is our ethical duty to throw ourselves at the broken object. I think our ethical duty is to treat the broken objects that we're asked to treat. So if somebody asks us to treat it, we turn up and say, oh, this is what we can do. This is how we yeah. can help. For the, the oh. listeners, Jane is putting a very winning smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> and I've turned up with my how to help kit, you know, and maybe called in by someone more senior so that you don't have to deal with it. I told you it was wrong stuff because I told you so. It's like such an unconstructive message. However, you know, you've just got to bury that deep inside. You can go home and tell your cat slash partner. <laughs> you can then maybe press your advantage though. So that would be the next day you'd say, oh, you know, yes. in the light of events, here's my handy guide on what to do if things get dropped. And can I also remind you, here's a handling policy. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> that is diplomatic and stealthy boom yeah mic drop it's about learning from your mistakes isn't it and i mean as an institution not well also you as a conservative mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. maybe there was another way to you could have communicated that but maybe ultimately you tried everything that you could you pulled all the rabbits out of your hat when you were trying to deliver the message that this shouldn't have been done but sometimes that's just the way it is and you you yeah. can only give advice you cannot make people take it yeah and that's yes. true of everything and it's true as a freelancer or an in-house conservator mm -hmm. you cannot make people do do what you what you would like them to do but you you can give advice and ultimately that's all it is force people to do things mm. then they'll resent it and they'll hate you and they won't do you know if anyone's ever worked in a factory or some really repetitive job. Mm. Or I, I worked on a cheese gas. <laughs> and you, you just spend your entire day thinking of ways of undermining how the thing works, don't you? <laughs> how can I? <laughs> how can I play the system in order to get my best possible advantage? You know, and just not go insane. So if you force people to behave in a certain way and they don't agree with it, then the second your back's turned, they'll undermine you. So in a sense, sometimes it's like, let go of the short-term loss and go for, play the long game mm. and think about how you win the mind over a period of time so we can learn from this as opposed to you are a moron. That's a long-term strategy, isn't it? Yes. And okay, some objects go, oh, and you know the other thing? You know what we're like with damage? You know, we're so bad at me. Try to, try to, I don't know, you know, we go, oh, look at that, isn't that great? You see those damage, you see those holes? Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just think of the conservation you could do on that yeah. <laughs> I have generally had someone rock up to me and I, rather than going doom and gloom has rocked up to me and said I'm keeping you in business <laughs> so, wow what's happened <laughs> it's another way of looking at it if yeah. people didn't break things they wouldn't need conservators I think I have in the past said to a very upset collections assistant hey you tried your best sometimes it gets broken oh yeah oh, oh the most heartbreaking thing is volunteers oh like, i broke the thing and it's like oh no it's okay it's okay that's why you've got me isn't it great it's okay just go and have a cup of tea go and have a cup of tea and we won't ever do this again will we yeah it's gonna be okay
There's one museum, didn't they do um, a Twitter thing where a kid broke something and then they kind of invited yeah. him back to see being meant and redisplayed? Yes, yes, they did. Yeah, oh, I, I remember didn't that. see that. Which that... object was that? It was a ceramic, wasn't it? I want to say it was a ceramic. I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, to make it less traumatising really... for him, you know, oh. like... I quite like that. It was very human of them. And it's also us conservation again. Look at us. We're access. I mean, yes, an object has been broken and no, we're not chuffed about it. But let's, instead of sort of reflecting on that, that side of it, let's reflect on what's the positive thing we can go from here. It's yeah. the long game stuff. Yeah. I have an example similar, but I don't know whether I should name the museum. <laughs> an unnamed museum. Okay. The, the giant ceramic that was uh, accidentally tipped down the stairs <laughs> along oh. with the visitor. Wasn't that man banned? <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's another way of doing it, I guess. <laughs> but You're wasn't their website wonderful afterwards? Have you seen all the animations and the oh, yeah. conservation? And you can join in. They've got like a little animation tool that you can do retouching. Oh, no, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but that is a re- I mean, that fad was almost more famous after, but the conservation got such a good profile out of it. Yes. And they did such a beautiful job with the interactives. And again, you know, it wasn't an ideal situation, we, none of us, you know, welcome that sort of thing. But they really made such a positive, right from the archaeological mapping of all the pieces, mm. all the way through to the retouching, all sort of... I love the little interactive games on the computer that you can do with them. Have you seen them? No, no, I haven't. I'm going to have to uh, put a link we'll in the show. The link. Sure. It's interesting to think about because that was obviously a really pub- public image really positive mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. actually where oh something's happened and we're really really turning it into something that's really good and uh, you know a tool for outreach as for you can have the right opposite sometimes where something is very much covered up like oh why is this giant painting not here we're not talking about it <laughs> okay i was just asking that's that's okay and then mysteriously it reappears a year later and it's pristine and it's like what what happened to the painting? Don't ask questions. There is a slight line in it. No, no, no there isn't. <laughs> Nothing happened. Nobody spilled ink on it. You can hush hush it. But what's the point? Why not make it? Why not try to make it something positive and something to learn from? Because ultimately, it does actually get conservation out there as as a profession, yeah. which is really nice. So I think this this has relevance to our probably our um, the, our well being episode that we have this sort of pressure to feel perfect all the time. We have to be the perfect conservator. We have to protect all the things. We have to make sure that nothing goes wrong. We operate to the bestest, best of best practice. <laughs> and um, nothing ever goes wrong with us because we're super amazing. But in actual fact, pick your battles. It, yes. Yeah. Another thing is, and this is a bit more psychology, mm-hmm. apologies now, um, some people work from what the best is and work back. And some people work from what the current is and work forwards. Mm. And we tend to have our own natural approaches on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I've changed a little bit through my life, but I think we, you probably recognize yourself. Is when you, know, you go into a store or something and you imagine what it could be like, and then you feel how far you are from it, and that's how you just draw up your plans. Mm. Or you can go in a store and you can think, oh, I'll just pick that thing up over there and move it from away from the water. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm that person. <laughs> but I'm an improver, are- not a perfectionist. <laughs> If you're an improver, then you get pleasure from every improvement. Mm. If you are a perfectionist, then you are always frustrated until you get to perfection. Mm. And that's fine, because if that's who you are, you're used to being that person. But say you're working with a colleague, say a curator who's an improver, and you're a perfectionist, then they are feeling like, well, hang on, why are we trying? Because I've done this, we've done all these things better, and they're still not happy. Mm. So like, what is it? make this person happy so if you are a perfectionist it's you know i think a lot of conservatives are i think that's not unnatural for us to be that way Mm. you have to just think about how your messaging what you're saying about a situation might really jar with someone else who can't see why you can't 
check the improvements and be pleased about them. Yeah. No, that's a really good point, actually. Personality types do matter. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm somewhere in between. I feel like I started off as a perfectionist, but now I've sort of worked at so many different types of places, so many different sort of levels of resources, essentially, and so many different stages on the road to best practice that I've kind of, I think I've sort of chilled out more towards improver, but I've still got that in the back of my mind. I'd say definitely I do work from best back and just I I suppose I'm just not so stressed out about how far back I have to go (laughs) before I hit the current (laughs) maybe this is essentially uh, the ultimate interview question is are you an improver or a perfectionist oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, speaking of picking your battles uh, I know that I asked you about this Jane because uh, when I started my latest job the one I have now then uh, I brought up the, there's a giant taxidermy bear that people keep coming in and hugging yes. and touching. And they really, they love this bear. This bear is everyone's favorite. What's his name again? Uh, Marco. How is Marco? Marco is bald. Oh dear. <laughs> right, Marco is bald and he looks like a polar bear because he's bleached oh, white essentially. No. So, um, but Marco is such a popular attraction and the whole idea is that people who have always touched him come in mm-hmm. and let their children touch him and it's it's this very embedded thing so i remember asking you jane when i first started is there anything i can do about this because i'm so concerned there might be pesticides in him he's really good nick aside from the bald patches you know <laughs> I, I really worry about what's in him and then i think you and i had a little debate and we kind of came to the conclusion that but this is historic this is mm-hmm. this is what people do and putting up barriers and making him inaccessible is actually just going to make people massively sad and or angry and it's what are you achieving you're taking enjoyment away from people and ultimately there's probably no way of stopping it short of putting him actually in a glass display case which you can't afford anyway so good luck (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's it's about picking your battles where it was something i initially really worried about because Mm -hmm. i saw it all the time and i couldn't unsee it you know the little children coming up and hugging his leg and putting their face right with the ball patches (laughs) it's like oh doing i have relaxed since then and kind of come come to see it as this is how the public interacts with this object it is much like people always come in and touch like a a special rock in some places Mm -hmm. and you know people have these little rituals and sometimes even if it makes me itch i just have to accept that (laughs) and that's okay it's um i would argue that conservatives we don't conserve um materials we conserve value yeah and if we conserve value then you have to just say what's the value of marco Mm, and the value of marco is that your granddad hugged him and your mum and dad hugged him and now you're hugging him yeah and you've all got a photo admittedly in the first picture was brown and furry yes (laughs) (laughs) but you know if you're not happy about that kind of conversation then you get your colleagues and you say can we talk about what we have marco for yeah and what do we think is important about Marco? And if everyone says, well, what's important about Marco is he's the only one of this bear in the world or, the, you know, is the only specimen. Then you have to say, well, do we think we're doing the right thing? But if, you know, everyone agrees that the value of Marco is that he's just the thing, the, the local thing that everybody loves in the museum, then we preserve that value. And by putting a glass case around him would be damaging to that form of value. Yeah. Absolutely. But in my opinion. Yes. (laughs) I suppose we, yeah, in my current place of work, there's a a similar attitude of there are rotating open display objects and we are able to rotate them and have loads of different ones on display because they are on open display. And the the, the nature of being able to do that is 
putting them at risk essentially of being touched people do touch them people do interact with them in that way we monitor them but to make them safer essentially putting them all behind perspex whatever it is would mean that we couldn't rotate them we couldn't get loadout on display we 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 just wouldn't be able to display them in the way that we display them Mm. and it's the the value of them is the the way that they're displayed is the way that we can get audiences get people to see them as much as possible so i absolutely resonate with this yeah and that's the kind of thing that's the sort of thing that we have to negotiate all the time really so you know that's part of being heard and thinking about what you're saying (laughs) and what you're trying to do anyway so should we play a game yes Yes. let's make a positive out of a negative okay i don't know how hard this is gonna be i'm nervous yes Okay, Jenny, give us a challenge. You've got one. Okay, there's a nice giant painting receiving a lot of UV light in a lovely staircase with like beautiful Venetian windows. Oh. It's too big to go anywhere else in the museum. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> how, how important is the painting, Jenny? Uh, very. Like it has local significance. Like it's important to the house. Chloe, are we thinking UV glazing? I'm thinking UV filters. I'm also wondering whether there are any like integral blinds or Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. there a view outside or is it a building site outside and the view doesn't matter? Yeah, because I was just going to put a glazing on the painting. Oh, I was thinking windows. I was thinking of the windows. So I suppose glazing on the painting is Mm. possibly more straightforward. Mm. It's expensive. You get that stuff with that ground finish that doesn't reflect. Yeah. Oh. It's to go with a grant bid for that one. Yeah, okay. Because I think it's quite quite pricey. Because presumably, if your painting is in the stairs and there's windows everywhere, the lights are bouncing off it really awkwardly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we could go with it. Or people can't really see this properly. And we've come across this really fab new glazing, Ooh. which has UV filter in it. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens to have oh. completely perfect. Oh, I like situation. it. I like it. It is a little bit expensive. So someone's going to have to write it grand. <laughs> but we don't have to do anything to the windows because the windows are lovely and everyone loves the windows. So, so a, a UV film on the windows mm. is a no-go. Uh, well, in this particular instance, I'm thinking, well, they're kind of more like skylights. So how would you get up there easily? Oh, I see. Oh, that's a bit tricky. Yeah. Okay. Tricky and probably okay. really expensive in terms of both the film and getting scaffolding. So maybe a film over one thing rather than mm. multiple things. I mm. see. Mm. Mm. See, that's not bad. That's good problem solving team. I think that rather than take the painting away and put it in store, it's we can do this thing. Well, I mean, part of me is thinking, what's the turning circle like on the painting? Do you have to take it off the stretcher in order to get it down? Like, how how big is it? Uh, no, it can be it can be maneuvered outside, but it okay. cannot go on any other wall. Right, I see. Okay. So the the issue is very much that it's the only wall with no window on it. I see. I see. Well, what if that? it's a loan and the loaning institution Ooh. has a new uh, registrar or conservation professional insert, checking up on relevant, everything. checking up on everything, sees the situation, goes, this is unacceptable. <laughs> what do you think you're doing? And what do you think you've been doing for the last 20 years? What then? Ooh, uh, then probably shuffle, apologize, look embarrassed. <laughs> Blush a lot. <laughs> so, so what's on loan? What is it? Do we know? 
if it's the i'm i suppose mine is my uh my challenge is just altering the scenario slightly so that the the giant painting is a is a loan a historic loan a long-term loan from an institution that has just got a new registrar or conservation professional um, who is doing checkups of all of their objects out on loan and is now changing the stipulations essentially saying this is unacceptable why are you allowing so much damage onto my object do you know i um, i don't know about you jenny but i think it's there if it's their object it's their right to take it back it certainly is so i think you'd have to open up the line of communication and go if you're very unhappy with this then you're going to have to take it back. Then possibly offer them some other lines of options, like some other options uh, where it's like, oh, we mm. could do this, but we will need funding for it. Uh-huh. So you uh-huh. and I will have to do a joint grant bid if you'd like that to happen. Oh. And here's the time scale, make a little project plan. So offer to go half these, you know, like. <gasps> what about the dreaded risk assessment? Oh. Let's, what about going with the, ooh, let's write a risk assessment together for moving it. Where oh. were you thinking of putting it? Oh, I like that. It's presumably they haven't got a wall for it either. Otherwise, yeah. they would have loaned it to you. Yes, exactly. Uh, true. Yes. Yes, that's true. And then, oh, is it just going to go back in stores and that? Oh, that's dreadfully sad, isn't it? And then you can probably it make some argument about public engagement uh-huh. and how appreciated it is in the museum. It's 100,000 viewers a day, uh, a, um, a year. Yeah, and then how et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's really pimping them because it has a nice sign next to it saying, yes. this is loaned from the so-and-so museum. Uh-huh. And gratefully loaned from amazing kudos <laughs> which means that people go mm, where's that museum maybe i'll go there as well okay that was very well done ladies. <laughs> very good <laughs> jane what's yours okay so your art gallery mm-hmm. has got a leak in the roof mm-hmm. and there's water coming through and collecting it in the bucket you placed mm-hmm. how do we make anything positive out of that oh look it's no longer too dry in here <laughs> 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 too obvious <laughs> We've solved the low humidity problem. <laughs> Is this turning it into a positive for the institution or for the visitors? I guess you're the conservator and you're looking at the gallery and the bucket and you've just been listening to the sea word and you're thinking, right, I've got to try and make something positive out of this and I can't be a naysayer. How the heck do I say anything constructive to anyone apart from, ah! <laughs> how, far away the, how far away is the closest object? But it's a paintings gallery, so they're all on the walls. Oh, I know what you can do. You can get some of these nice absorbent, you know, bill kits. Yeah. And then mm. that's modern art in the middle. Oh. <laughs> very avant-garde. Very avant-garde. <laughs> very avant-garde. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I go at it with an, with an institutional hat on it, then it's like, oh, well, now we can make some sort of public funding appeal because people can go yes. in and see... And see that this isn't good, is it? It's coming into a bucket that's dreadful. Yes. Don't you want all these paintings to be safe and lovely forever? Donate now for <laughs> <laughs> a GoFundMe. <laughs> so we need like a collecting box? Yes, definitely yes. a collecting box. Yes. And a website yes. and a social media campaign. And some polythene sheeting. Yes. <laughs> mm. I think the director may say no, but I think we should go with it anyway. At least we said something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We've, made a, we've made a clear suggestion. Yeah. Or can we uh, say, well, here's the good news. We can keep half of the gallery open. Or is that too negative and obviously mm. manipulative? <laughs> well, I, I think, Chloe, at least saying something like, well, which paintings can we keep? It's better yes. than yes. which paintings do we have to take down. Yes. Mm. Yes. No, that's true. That's true. Yes, you, definitely. It's been the, the positive language. That's good. Uh-huh. What can we keep? Isn't it good that this isn't hazardous water? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not good that it's quite clean. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's not it? from a toilet overflow. Yeah, <laughs> that's lucky, yeah. true. Yeah, that's pretty good. I think we did okay with those. I think we tried. Yeah. We really gave it a good shot. Yeah, I mean, not everything does have a happy outcome, but you can attempt it. I yeah. Think, I think that's the takeaway from that. Yeah. yeah. I think people tend to... There does tend to be a change in attitude as soon as things like the building starts going wrong. Like you, you, if there's there's water ingress, at least in my experience, people do sort of put on a, they sort of sit up straighter and go, oh, right, let's get someone in. I feel like it depends. If it's the main museum where visitors come, uh-huh. then yes. If it's the store, oh, I the feel like store. the general consensus tends to be it's not that bad. Cover it in some sheeting. You, can, you yeah. can just change the bucket every now and then, yeah. you know, or... Mm, it's not really funding right now or we don't even know if we want to keep this building why, why would we do roof repairs that seems dumb so those attitudes can be more difficult to deal with as we're very much yes i agree if it's the main if it's the main museum building mm-hmm. then it's much easier to get people on board with taking it seriously if it is just the store then it's not so sexy anymore to do the repairs and to find the money or we would like to uh, maybe we can make raise the funds to repair the building so that we can do store tours there's there's an angle heritage open day similar there's an angle festivals etc mm-hmm. yeah yeah getting other people in to look at your, your dirty little secret <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it might be a, get, a way of getting somebody else to point out without you having to be the one that you know points out the bad news yeah yeah that, that's also that's also true yeah i feel like the tagline for this should be manipulating the people <laughs> gently massaging people into <laughs> so the, the the titles are either listen up being heard in conservation or <laughs> manipulation <laughs> influence in conservation yeah because that's what i started started by saying is that it's not so much what you're saying it's what they're thinking that mm-hmm. matters and you can find that by listening yeah no that's true so listen up yeah. oh pro tip i like it oh what a positive note to end on i like that thank you for joining us jane you're an thank absolute you pleasure thank you so much hello listeners today i'm here with my new adhesive friend aquazol and i've been doing some testing i hadn't heard about aquazol until recently but it seems to have been coming into conservation from industrial use since the late 90s there are a few papers from around this time particularly by julia slangelou which states properties and comparisons with other adhesives. And there is a more recent paper in volume 35 of the Icon Journal, Aquazol as a consolidant for matte paint on Vietnamese paintings. Initially, I was researching its use as a consolidant for painted textiles, but in my reading, I noticed that it has been reported as forming good heat-activated films. The object I'm working on at the moment is a painted brittle silk banner with flaking paint layers. So an adhesive textile support and consolidant is exactly what I need. I like this adhesive because of various reasons that have been outlined in the papers, including its solubility in loads of different solvents, including alcohol and water. It's non-toxic, and it just generally seems like a really good, easy-to-work-with adhesive. And that if it can be used for both consolidants and films, it'd be nice to keep each adhesive that I'm using the same To start with, I tested a 10% film in IMS as a comparison with the same percentage of Lascaux, and it was far too stiff. It completely changed the movement properties of the silk, and it just didn't seem to leave the silk crackling support when I added heat. 
I also tried using a solvent environment, but that just penetrated far too much instead. Um, it caused massive darkening um, and it would have been a nightmare to remove and reverse if I had to. Um, so that wasn't suitable either. So let's have a look at my film. So this is a 5% film in IMS. It seems fairly even, there are no gaps. I'm not great at adhesive film cast textiles, uh, as I'm still learning. It has a very different feel to Lascaux, the equivalent of a Lascaux film, and a very, very different feel to the 10% uh, Aquasol that I was using, as you'd expect. Still not as soft as Lascaux, it's still quite stiff, it seems. There does seem to be some tack created with my fingers, so maybe that will be helpful. Uh, but let's see. Now for the attachment test. I'm using a heated spatula at 70 degrees. The TG is reported, of Aquasol is reported at 69 to 71 degrees C. But I did notice with my previous tests for the 10% that that didn't seem to cut it. It wasn't hot enough. So I'll try from 70 degrees, but I suspect I may have to increase it. Well, it seems to be sticking um, a bit, but not very much. I wouldn't call it attached. So I'm increasing it now to 90. So I'm at 90 degrees C now, um, and I'm getting some results. It is casting nicely now. Um, it's attaching quickly as well. So even though I'm worried about um, the higher temperature against the silk, for use against an actual object, it does reactivate very quickly, so there's less exposure to the heat, even though it's higher. So my film is cast. It's nice and even, and I'm pulling it. It seems very strong. The peel strength is actually pretty low still, so it wouldn't be problematic to remove it, um, necessarily, but the and it wouldn't cause damage as far as I can tell. It seems somewhat weaker than Lasco in comparisons with the peel test, though. I'm sure you could probably argue that both ways, to be honest. Different suitabilities for different substrates. And it does seem to be quite strong pulling against it along the length of it. It doesn't, as, it, as something would be hanging, for example, it doesn't seem to, seem to want to go at all, um, which is encouraging. So it can be easily peeled, but not easily removed or easily fail once hanging or once supporting a textile. We still have the problem of stiffness though and next I think I'll try halving the concentration again to 2.5% and see what strength results I can get with that versus um, the movement qualities of the, of the, the finished cast textile. A specific problem for my workplace is split damage caused at the interface between silk and painted areas. So this adhesive that's suitable for both paint and silk could be really well used for patch supports, but maybe not for large areas of textile if, the changes, if it changes the movement quality too much for purposes of hanging and if it changes the general quality of how a textile is hung, specifically if it's fine silk, for example. I'm also not keen on using high temperatures, as I said earlier, and it might cause problems for different paint types like acrylic, which I'll need to do the testing for anyway. 
So if any listeners have had experience with Aquazole in this way as film casts or have any thoughts on this at all in my results and testing, please don't hesitate to contact us at The C Word. Thank you very much. Dear Jane, I have a curator who is absolutely impossible to work with. He doesn't listen to anything I say, and often I just get mansplaining thrown back in my face. Whether it's wearing gloves to handling objects sensibly, he just will not listen. Nothing seems to be working. What can I do? Best, Chris. Dear Chris, thanks for your question. And I just want to start by saying something which you might be surprised about. And that is that you can't win every battle. And one of the things that we sometimes have to do as conservatives is learn to live with the fact that some people just won't listen. That's not to say that you should give up. I just want to say that you don't have to necessarily own other people's behaviour problems. You don't have to own other people's attitudes. If it's their problem and their attitude, then you have to do what you can, but also protect your own well-being, sense of self, and don't get absolutely drawn into their world and their way of behaving. Because there's nothing worse than coming home from the end of the day and having been unpleasant or argumentative all day because somebody else wants to be that way. So be professional, do what you need to do, but be prepared to walk away. So that said, what can you do? Well, in any encounter, there's what you say, there's you and there's them. And there's also where you say those things to them. So there's a couple of things you can do. You can try to think of ways of making him think it was his own idea, which is, you know, I think sometimes a little bit iffy, isn't it, that we women have to give away their ideas in order to get anything done. But maybe you could do that. Perhaps you prefer to get somebody else to endorse your ideas. Basically, the go above their head strategy. Now, going above people's heads is very dangerous organisationally. So be extremely careful how you do that. Think about doing it subtly, perhaps by winning someone more senior to them, someone that they respect in an informal encounter, talking things over, not in terms of, oh, grassing up this guy, but more in terms of sort of discussing matters of professionalism, making sure that they've got gloves when they're handling objects, in the hope that at one point they will tell the curator what to do and put them down, and put them into their place, not put them down. (laughs) Um, Mansplaining, you don't have to put up with. You could think about going to human resources. (laughs) That's a very big topic in terms of what your chances of success are there, and perhaps Jenny and Chloe can do a whole episode about that, and I can expand on my thoughts then. But... Um, You can also just put things in writing, put them across, uh, leave on the table. And if they don't do them, then you can think to yourself, well, I've explained it, but that's all I can do. Um, Other things that you can do is get people around them working better so that they have peer-to-peer influence. So that if you can work on people who are not necessarily influencing the person that is bothering you, but are around them, so perhaps not their boss, but their colleagues, then that might also create a bit of social isolation. So I don't think it's easy. You can change your message and sort of change it to um, away from um, you've got to wear gloves because otherwise you're going to harm the objects to gloves convey a sense of prestige or if you leave your fingerprints on these, um, we may end up with damage that could cause an insurance claim or something like that. Oh, of course, the old Simon Sharma wears gloves defence. But once you've said your piece and once you've put your arguments across, make sure that they're recorded, make sure that they're said appropriately, calmly, in an appropriate circumstance. If they won't listen, walk away. You're a better person than them. You don't have to live like that. That's my advice. Over and out. 
And now for some comments, questions and corrections. As usual, we love hearing from you, so please feel free to get in touch. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but a couple of months ago we tweeted about why Melanex is always high shine. Like it's always clear with that really, uh-huh. really high shine. Yeah. Uh-huh. And Pell got in touch with us, so preservation equipment, because uh, apparently this caused a bit of a, a, a talk in the office. They said, this is race discussion. Uh, we're going, going to get some matte finish polyester as a sample, which we which we will send to you. Our opinion is that the matte finish is achieved by lightly abrading the, sur- the polyester surface so it wouldn't affect its properties. Because one of the theories that people had on Twitter was that you're probably adding something to the mixture to make uh-huh. it go matte. So that would, of course, mess up the mm-hmm. archival qualities. Mm-hmm. But it looks like you could actually achieve the same thing by lightly abrading it. Which makes sense, so that will matte down the kind of surface gloss. Uh, there are literally hundreds of grades and finishes of polyester, so there could also be some matte finishes that are achieved by coating, uh, which will make it unsuitable for our cable use, they say. We think that the main reason the polished or gloss finish is generally the only type available is down to, first and foremost, clarity. Polished gloss finish is almost 100% clear, and adding any type of matte finish will reduce that clarity. And secondly, our polyester is grade 401, uh, which is known as industry standard approved by the Library of Congress in the USA. So it's kind of a product trust thing. Like people know what they're getting when it's like a Melanex mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. yeah, And that makes sense. And then they actually sent us a couple of samples of the inert matte polyester. Amazing. Uh, so I've got some comparisons here. I've got regular Melanex and two sheets of different microns honestly i had never thought about this before i think i had just thought oh melanex it's this and not really gone any further with that in my yeah, brain I but then really... i feel like i feel like now that i work within a museum that has an archive i come across a lot more archive stuff uh-huh. and i do agree that it's extremely annoying to always have to take delicate things out of the the melanex pockets yeah every time you need to take a photo of it Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously that's kind of not the point right you're not (laughs) supposed to take it in and out all the time it's supposed to protect it and does but it does get extremely annoying Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how how this came about people were a little bit annoyed that they had to handle the fragile material a bit extra much and i'm totally with them on that so yeah we've got in front of us in front of us here this is regular melanex uh-huh. for comparison okay, i see it i see it super glossy you can super it's practically glossy. a mirror I, mean, I can see my i mean oh dear <laughs> i can also see my expression in it my face in it right i'm putting this then aside we got, then we got the matte one which is 50 micron oh i see oh oh it feels much lighter it does and it's cloudy so it's got a sort of milky finish to it you can still see through it you could still use it for tracing or uh, working through in that respect but if you put it on a dark surface it's it's pretty milky yeah it's pretty milky so what i find interesting is that it is certainly less glossy it's not perfectly matte but it's less glossy uh-huh. but yeah you're gonna have some real problems with looking through that uh depending on what kind of material is behind it you would probably find that that really obscures yeah. the text that you might want to see or the artwork or actually yeah so actually i totally see what they mean uh mm-hmm. it's even when it's achieved by abrasion that just doesn't really work and here's the 75 micron which is slightly thicker um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but again it is hugely milky it's yeah it's actually a very interesting kind of quality because obviously it's very very see-through but it's it's got a sort of just really really uniform 
haze to it. Yeah, it's very difficult to describe. I figured I would probably put out a video uh, just yes. demonstrating these because they are terrifically odd to look at. Mm. And yeah, they it's you look at it and then you're like, yeah, that does the job. And then you put it against something and you go, oh, that doesn't do the job at all. What am I doing? I think because yeah, I mean, the shine is definitely reduced. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a reduced shine, Absolutely but, but it is still there. So it's still reflective. So you would still possibly struggle with that for photography, uh-huh. even if it was more clear. Yeah. So actually, the the matte polyester doesn't actually solve that problem. And uh, something that Pell did point out was that the haze, which is the manufacturer's term, mm-hmm. really reduces the clarity significantly. Mm-hmm. Ten sheets of this film layered on top of itself, and it's basically opaque. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think the sad truth is that maybe the glossy melanex is the thing because mm. there's no good way around it. You kind of can't make it matte without possibly adding something nasty to it. And then what's the point? Yeah, I think you know what you're getting with with, yeah. the, with the standard melanex. And I suppose if, you're, if we're talking about photography of things in melanex sheets, maybe there are options like light boxes and things that and little uh, cubes and things that can be used to try and reduce some of the glass, like taking photographs of glass objects. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe the thing is you take one really good photograph and then it lives in this metal next leaf. Yeah. You know, it might just yeah. have to be one of those things that we have to get through. So, yeah, thank you to Pell for sending us those samples. That was really helpful. I love that this is being looked into. That's really great. I like that, you know, the, the Twitter question... Uh, did result in some answers even though they're not happy answers well that we know that there are options so and we know that it's it's really great to know that if a lower shine option is what is necessary it is what is needed and actually the opacity isn't really that mm. much of an issue then that's fantastic because it could be something for making films or adhesive films does this affect the shine that you get from an adhesive that you create an adhesive film with mm-hmm. if you're using a less vastly smooth glossy surface mm. so you could use it for film casting use the matte version for film casting if it did make a difference i'd, I'd actually it'd be interested to do some experiments with that actually mm. um so different different options but i suppose we just need to know what the what the qualities are we need and what the qualities are we'll get yeah but i think what we have in front of us is actually not the solution because that's just it's a bit too milky i think it just is Anyway, thank you so much for listening. As usual, if you have any comments, questions or corrections, get in touch. Thanks for listening. With The C Word, and you'll be listening to Jane Anderson, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jen Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about funding. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Dita Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Let's go outside to the sun. Yeah.